At various points in life, I'm sure all of us have had the experience uh, where we have been asked to help friends or family with some major project, something like helping someone move or major yard cleaning, landscaping. Maybe uh, we've been asked to help someone do some significant cleaning or painting. And being the helpful people that we are, we set, the si- the, set aside the time, gather whatever tools or supplies are needed, and we show up at the appointed time ready to put in some serious hard work. Hopefully, we have also had the joyful experience of gearing up for a full day of work like, hard work like that arriving at the designated place at the designated time and finding out that everything's already been done. There's nothing left to do. I don't know, maybe somebody showed up early and even maybe the day before and they took care of everything. They already did it. Or maybe someone generously decided to to pay professionals to do all of that hard work. So we get to hear that wonderful phrase, it's all done. We show up and they say, there's nothing left to do. And we respond, what do you mean? What about the bathrooms? What about the basement? What about the backyard? No, it's all done. There's nothing left. There's literally nothing left to do other than maybe enjoy the donuts and coffee or or pizza and beer, depending on what time of day it is. I don't know, for someone like me who doesn't really enjoy hard work, I don't know if there is a more pleasurable phrase in the English language to hear than, it's all done. And this is the phrase that we hear Jesus say to us this morning in relation to our reconciled life with God and, and with all of creation, for that matter. Of course, he didn't say it in English, but that's how it translates. This one phrase, which is actually literally in the, in the original language, just one word. <laughs> you kill me, Abbott. You're the best. Literally, it's one word in the original language, and it may be the most wonderful truth that we can ever hear. When it comes to our salvation from death and the way of death into life in God's kingdom, there is nothing left to do. Jesus has already done everything necessary. Now, it may not initially seem like that one short cry from Jesus, it is finished, carries that much more meaning beyond the reality that Jesus is about to die. And in that way, his life is almost finished. However, one of the distinguishing features of John's telling of Jesus' story, which we've seen over and over again as we've worked through this gospel is that almost everything that John writes about Jesus, what he said, what he did, almost everything has numerous layers of meaning. Here in our scripture for this morning, 
Jesus' expression, it is finished, is his way of announcing, like I was saying with the kids, that his whole purpose in coming into our world is now completed. In fact, we, we caught a glimpse of that at the start, knowing that all had now been completed. First he says he's thirsty, and then he says it's finished. Jesus was born into a life of flesh and blood as a human being in order to reveal what it looks like for a human being to live a life fully as God desires all of us to live. And in so doing that, to reconcile all of humanity with God through his own perfect life, Jesus's life. Here, as Jesus hangs on a cross moments away from death, he knows that he's done it. He knows that he has lived a life fully devoted to God in loving obedience from birth all the way to death. We have to be aware that Jesus was tempted many times in his life, many times along the way, to give up his mission. Especially in some of the other Gospels, we hear how much he did not want to face crucifixion. He prayed in the garden, God, if there is any other way, take this cup, take this event away from me. Let me follow a different path. We read as well that in that moment, he was so fearful and anxious that he sweat blood. And yet, he did it. He went through with it. He allowed himself to be arrested, tortured, and crucified, he didn't, and he didn't back out. He likely also faced temptation while he was on the cross. That was the premise behind the uh, controversial novel and film, The Last Temptation of Christ, by Nikos Kazantzakis. We all know, we know from the scriptures that Jesus had the power to save himself at any moment, even when he was on the cross. And he had people, we know from the Gospels, we had people who were taunting him and saying, okay, prove it. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself. In Cousin Zacchaeus' story, in those moments of that temptation when he's on the cross, in in that story, Jesus is tempted with a vision of what life would be like, what a normal life would be like with Mary Magdalene, living like a normal couple would live. But even in Cousin Zacchaeus' novel, Jesus stays true to his purpose to the very end. In our story, even though Jesus is suffering and suffering mightily, he knows that he's going to make it to the very end. He's close enough now that he knows it. And in that sense, this exclamation from Jesus is an acknowledgement of success. There's nothing left for him to do other than give up his spirit as he does. And that means 
that there's nothing left for us to do either. None of us will ever live a perfect life from beginning to end, following God's ways in complete loving obedience. But we don't have to. Through the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, we are incorporated, literally brought into the, the corpus, the, the body of Jesus. We are incorporated into the life of Jesus, the whole of his life from beginning to end. The truth, that truth is hinted at in that strange moment in our story this morning where the, sto- the soldier stabs Jesus in the side. Verses 31 and following. Uh, Because they didn't want to leave the bodies on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. This was a way to hurry up the death because it could actually go for days. The soldiers therefore came, (laughs) broke the legs of the first man that had been crucified with Jesus and the second. But when they come to Jesus, they find that he's already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And again, with John, there's always so much more at work. These two symbols, blood and water, have appeared numerous times throughout John's telling of Jesus' life. They speak to us of cleansing and forgiveness and new life in Jesus. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, put it this way. By these words, water and blood, John means that Christ brought the true atonement and the true washing, the forgiveness of sins and justification and the sanctification of the soul. The sacraments which Christ has left to his church have the same design. The purification and sanctification of the soul, which consists in newness of life, is pointed out to us in baptism. And the Lord's Supper is the pledge of a perfect atonement. In our New Testament passage, John ties all of this together. How Jesus gives his whole life in service to God from birth to death and how God uses the Holy Spirit and these symbols of blood and water to help us know all of that, all that we receive from Jesus. Again, he says, Jesus, the divine Christ, he experienced life-giving birth and death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth. On his ministry, of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing those occasions to life for us. A triple testimony the Spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion, Lord's Supper. And the three in perfect agreement. In perfect agreement, 
that Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. There's nothing left to do. It's finished. Years before Jesus even appeared on earth, God gave Zechariah a sense of of what God intended for the Messiah. In that Hebrew passage, we heard that... uh, God will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, God says, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. John references that that experience in that scene. John makes that reference at the very end when he says... uh, these things happened to fulfill these scriptures that had been seen earlier. Uh, not one of his bones will be break, broken, and they will look on the one they have pierced. The interesting thing is a lot of the people who write about uh, John's gospel and the meaning of it and all, no, there's no agreement on whether John meant this as a, uh, a challenge, uh, almost a, a, a warning, or an encouragement. What did he mean by they will look on the one they have pierced? And what will the reaction be? There's no consistent agreement on whether seeing this vision of Jesus on the cross will be a good or a bad experience. Well, I pray for all of us that it is an encouragement that when we look at this image of Jesus on the cross, we know that he did it. Jesus lived the fullness of his life in perfect devotion to God the Father, God the Mother. When we let our hearts gaze on this image, we need to hear Jesus' words as God's words to us. It's finished. It's done. There is nothing left for you to do. There's nothing left for you to do. I know that that can be hard for us to believe sometimes, especially when we mess things up. When I do things wrong, sin, I have thoughts that go through my head like, I have to do something to make up for that. Or, I have done this same thing so many times. I'm sure that God didn't mean that I would be forgiven this many times. And yet, we hear from Scripture. When God looks at us, God sees Jesus on the cross. And God speaks to us the same words to our worried hearts that we hear Jesus speak this morning. There is nothing left to be done. Everything necessary has been completed. It is finished. Thanks be to God.